Section 2 of The Dolliver Romance and Other Pieces by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 2 Another Scene from The Dolliver Romance. Footnote This scene was not revised by the author, but is printed from his first draft. End footnote. We may now suppose Grand Sir Dolliver to have finished his breakfast, with a better appetite and sharper perception of the qualities of his food than he has generally felt of late years, whether it were due to old Martha's cookery or to the cordial of the night before. Little Pansy had also made an end of her bread and milk with entire satisfaction, and afterwards nibbled a crust, greatly enjoying its resistance to her little white teeth. How this child came by the odd name of Pansy, and whether it was really her baptismal name, I have not ascertained. More probably it was one of those pet appellations that grow out of a child's character, or out of some keen thrill of affection in the parents. An unsought-for and unconscious felicity. A kind of revelation teaching them the true name by which the child's guardian angel would know it. A name with playfulness and love in it that we often observe to supersede, in the practice of those who love the child best, the name that they carefully selected, and caused the clergyman to plaster indelibly on the poor little forehead at the fount. The love name, whereby if the child lives, the parents know it in their hearts, or by which, if it dies, God seems to have called it away, leaving the sound lingering faintly and sweetly through the house. In Pansy's case, it may have been a certain pensiveness, which was sometimes seen under her childish frolic, and so translated itself into French, pensée, her mother having been of Acadian kin, or quite as probably it alluded merely to the color of her eyes, which in some lights were very like the dark petals of a tuft of pansies in the doctor's garden. It might very well be, indeed, on account of the suggested pensiveness, for the child's gaiety had no example to sustain it, no sympathy of other children or grown people, and her melancholy, had it been so dark a feeling, was but the shadow of the house and of the old man. If brighter sunshine came, she would brighten with it. This morning, surely, as the three companions, Pansy, Puss, and Grand Sir Dolliver, emerged from the shadow of the house into the small adjoining enclosure, they seemed all frolicsome alike. The doctor, however, was intent over something that had reference to his lifelong business of drugs. This little spot was the place where he was wont to cultivate a variety of herbs, supposed to be endowed with medicinal virtue. Some of them had been long known in the pharmacopoeia of the old world, and others in the early days of the country had been adopted by the first settlers from the Indian medicine men. Though with fear and even contrition, because... These wild doctors were supposed to draw their pharmaceutic knowledge from no gracious source, the black man himself being the principal professor in their medical school. From his own experience, however, Dr. Dolliver had long since doubted, though he was not bold enough quite to come to the conclusion, that Indian shrubs and the remedies prepared from them were much less perilous than those so freely used in European practice and singularly apt to be followed by results quite as propitious. Into such heterodoxy our friend was the more liable to fall, because it had been taught him early in life by his old master, Dr. Swinnerton, who, 
at those not infrequent times when he indulged a certain unhappy predilection for strong waters, had been accustomed to invade terms of the most cynical contempt and coarsest ridicule against the practice by which he lived, and, as he affirmed, inflicted death on his fellow men. Our old apothecary, though too loyal to the learned profession with which he was connected fully to believe this bitter judgment, even when pronounced by his revered master, was still so far influenced that his conscience was possibly a little easier when making a preparation from forest herbs and roots than in the concoction of half a score of nauseous poisons into a single elaborate drug, as the fashion of that day was. But there were shrubs in the garden of which he had never ventured to make a medical use, nor, indeed, did he know their virtue. Although from year to year he had tended and fertilized, weeded and pruned them with something like religious care. They were of the rarest character and had been planted by the learned and famous Dr. Swinnerton, who, on his deathbed when he left his dwelling, and all his abstruse manuscripts to his favorite pupil, had particularly directed his attention to this row of shrubs. They had been collected by himself from remote countries, and had the poignancy of torrid climes in them. And he told them that, properly used, they would be worth all the rest of the legacy a hundredfold. As the apothecary, however, found the manuscripts in which he conjectured there was a treatise on the subject of these shrubs, mostly illegible, and quite beyond his comprehension in such passages as he succeeded in puzzling out, partly because, owing to his very imperfect knowledge of Latin in which language they were written, he had never derived from them any of the promised benefit. And to say the truth, remembering that Dr. Swinnerton himself never appeared to triturate or decoct or do anything else with the mysterious herbs, our old friend was inclined to imagine the weighty commendation of their virtues to have been the idly solemn utterance of mental aberration at the hour of death. So with the integrity that belonged to his character, he had nurtured them as tenderly as was possible in the ungenial climate and soil of New England, putting some of them into pots for the winter. But they had rather dwindled than flourished, and he had reaped no harvests from them, nor observed them with any degree of scientific interest. His grandson, however, while yet a schoolboy, had listened to the old man's legend of the miraculous virtues of these plants, and it took so firm a hold of his mind that the row of outlandish vegetables seemed rooted in it, and certainly flourished there with richer luxuriance than in the soil where they actually grew. The story, acting thus early upon his imagination, may be said to have influenced his brief career in life, and, perchance, brought about its early close. The young man, in the opinion of competent judges, was endowed with remarkable abilities, and, according to the rumor of the people, had wonderful gifts, which were proved by the cures he had wrought with remedies of his own invention. His talents lay in the direction of scientific analysis and inventive combination of chemical powers. While under the pupilage of his grandfather, his progress had rapidly gone quite beyond his instructor's hope leaving him even to tremble at the audacity with which he overturned and invented theories, and to wonder at the depth at which he wrought beneath the superficialness and mock mystery of the medical science of those days, like a miner sinking his shaft and running a hideous peril of the earth caving in above him. 
Especially did he devote himself to these plants, and under his care they had thriven beyond all former precedent, bursting into luxuriance of bloom, and most of them bearing beautiful flowers, which, however, in two or three instances, had the sort of natural repulsiveness that the serpent has in its beauty, compelled against its will, as it were, to warn the beholder of an unrevealed danger. The young man had long ago, it must be added, demanded of his grandfather the documents included in the legacy of Professor Swinnerton, and had spent days and nights upon them, growing pale over their mystic lore, which seemed the fruit not merely of the professor's own labors, but of those more ancient sages than he. And often a whole volume seemed to be compressed within the limits of a few lines of crabbed manuscript, judging from the time which it cost even the quick-minded student to decipher them. Meantime, these abstruse investigations had not wrought such disastrous effects as might have been feared, and causing Edward Dolliver to neglect the humble trade, the conductor of which his grandfather had now relinquished almost entirely into his hands. On the contrary, with the merest side results of his study, or what may be called the chips and shavings of his real work, he created a prosperity quite beyond anything that his simple-minded predecessor had ever hoped for. Even at the most sanguine epoch of his life, the young man's adventurous endowments were miraculously alive, and connecting themselves with his remarkable ability for solid research, and perhaps his conscience being as yet imperfectly developed as it sometimes lies dormant in the young. He spared not to produce compounds which, if the names were anywise to be trusted, would supersede all other remedies, and speedily render any medicine a needless thing, making the trade of apothecary an untenable one, and the title of doctor obsolete. Whether there was real efficacy in these nostrums, and whether their author himself had faith in them, is more than can safely be said. But at all events the public believed in them, and thronged to the old and dim sign of the brazen serpent, which, though hitherto familiar to them and their forefathers, now seemed to shine with auspicious luster, as if its old scriptural virtues were renewed. If any faith was to be put in human testimony, many marvelous cures were really performed, the fame of which spread far and wide, and caused demands for these medicines to come in from places far beyond the precincts of the little town. Our old apothecary, now degraded by the overshadowing influence of his grandson's character to a position not much above that of a shop-boy, stood behind the counter with a face sad and distrustful, and yet with an odd kind of fitful excitement in it, as if he would have liked to enjoy this new prosperity had he dared. Then his venerable figure was to be seen dispensing these questionable compounds by the single bottle and by the dozen, wronging his simple conscience as he dealt out what he feared was trash or worse, shrinking from the reproachful eyes of every ancient physician who might chance to be passing by. But, with all examining closely the silver or the New England coarsely printed bills which he took in payment, as if apprehensive that the delusive character of the commodity which he sold might be balanced by equal counterfeiting in the money received, or as if his faith in all things were shaken. Is it not possible that this gifted young man had indeed found out those remedies which nature has provided and laid away for the cure of every ill? 
The disastrous termination of the most brilliant epoch that had ever come to the brazen serpent must be told in a few words. One night, Edward Dolliver's young wife awoke, and seeing the gray dawn creeping into the chamber while her husband, it should seem, was still engaged in his laboratory, arose in her nightdress, and went to the door of the room to put in her gentle remonstrance against such labor. There she found him dead, sunk down out of his chair upon the hearth, where were some ashes, apparently of burnt manuscripts, which appeared to comprise most of those included in Dr. Swinnerton's legacy, though one or two had fallen near the heap and lay merely scorched beside it. It seemed as if he had thrown them into the fire under a sudden impulse in a great hurry and passion. It may be that he had come to the perception of something fatally false and deceptive in the successes which he had appeared to win, and was too proud and too conscientious to survive it. Doctors were called in, but had no power to revive him. An inquest was held, at which the jury, under the instruction perhaps of those same revengeful doctors, expressed the opinion that the poor young man, being given to the strange contrivances with poisonous drugs, had died by incautiously tasting them himself. This verdict, and the terrible event itself, at once deprived the medicines of all their popularity, and the poor old apothecary was no longer under any necessity of disturbing his conscience by selling them. They at once lost their repute, and ceased to be in any demand. In the few instances in which they were tried, the experiment was followed by no good results, and even those individuals who had fancied themselves cured had been loudest in spreading the praises of these beneficial compounds, now, as if for the utter demolition of the poor youth's credit, suffered under a recurrence of the worst symptoms, and in more than one case, perished miserably. Insomuch for the days of witchcraft were still within the memory of living men and women. It was the general opinion that Satan had been personally concerned in this affliction, and that the brazen serpent, so long honored among them, was really the type of his subtle malevolence and perfect iniquity. It was rumored even that all preparations that came from the shop were harmful, that teeth decayed, that had been made pearly white by the use of the young chemist's dentifrice, that cheeks were freckled that had been changed to damask roses by his cosmetics, that hair turned gray or fell off that had become black, glossy, and luxuriant from the application of his mixtures, that breath which his drugs had sweetened had now a sulfurous smell. Moreover, all the money heretofore amassed by the sale of them had been exhausted by Edward Dolliver and his lavish expenditure for the processes of his study, and nothing was left for Pansy except a few valueless and unsaleable bottles of medicine, and one or two others perhaps more recondite than their inventor had seen fit to offer to the public. Little Pansy's mother lived but a short time after the shock of the terrible catastrophe, and as we began our story with saying, she was left with no better guardianship or support than might be found in the efforts of a long, superannuated man. Nothing short of the simplicity, integrity, and piety of Grand Sir Dolliver's character, known and acknowledged as far back as the oldest inhabitants remembered anything, and inevitably discoverable by the dullest and most prejudiced observers in all its natural manifestations, could have protected him in still creeping about the streets. So far as he was personally concerned, however, all bitterness and suspicion had speedily passed away, and there remained still the careless and neglectful goodwill, and the prescriptive reverence, not 
altogether reverential, which the world heedlessly awards to the unfortunate individual who outlives his generation. And now that we have shown the reader sufficiently, or at least to the best of our knowledge and perhaps at tedious length, what was the present position of Grand Sir Dolliver, we may let our story pass onward, though at such a pace as suits the feeble gait of an old man. The peculiarly brisk sensation of this morning, to which we have more than once alluded, enabled the doctor to toil pretty vigorously at his medicinal herbs, his catnip, his vervain, and the like, but he did not turn his attention to the row of mystic plants, with which so much of trouble and sorrow either was or appeared to be connected. In truth, his old soul was sick of them, and their very fragrance, which the warm sunshine made strongly perceptible, was odious to his nostrils. But the spicy, home-like scent of his other herbs, the English simples, was grateful to him, and so was the earth smell as he turned up the soil about their roots and eagerly snuffed it in. Little Pansy, on the other hand, perhaps scandalized at great-grandpapa's neglect of the prettiest plants in his garden, resolved to do her small utmost towards balancing his injustice. So, with an old shingle fallen from the roof which she had appropriated as her agricultural tool, she began to dig about them, pulling up the weeds as she saw Grandpapa doing. The kitten, too, with a look of elfish sagacity, lent her assistance, plying her paws with vast haste and efficiency at the roots of one of the shrubs. This particular one was much smaller than the rest, perhaps because it was a native of the torrid zone and required greater care than the others to make it flourish, so that shriveled, cankered, and scarcely showing a green leaf, both Pansy and the kitten probably mistook it for a weed. After their joint efforts had made a pretty big trench about it, the little girl seized the shrub with both hands, bestriding it with her plump little legs, and giving so vigorous a pull that, long accustomed to be transplanted annually, it came up by the roots, and little Pansy came down in a sitting posture, making a broad impress on the soft earth. "'See? See, doctor?' cries Pansy, comically enough to give him his title of courtesy. "'Look, Grandpapa, the big naughty weed!' Now the doctor had at once a peculiar dread and a peculiar value for this identical shrub, both because his grandson's investigations had been applied more ardently to it than to all the rest, and because it was associated in his mind with an ancient and sad recollection. For he had never forgotten that his wife, the early lost, had once taken a fancy to wear its flowers day after day through the whole season of their bloom, in her bosom, where they glowed like a gem, and deepened her somewhat pallid beauty with a richness never before seen in it. At least, such was the effect which this tropical flower imparted to the beloved form in his memory, and thus it somehow both brightened and wronged her. This happened not long before her death, and whenever in the subsequent years this plant had brought its annual flower, it had proved a kind of talisman to bring up the image of Bessie, radiant with this glow that did not really belong to her naturally passive beauty quickly interchanging with another image of her form, with the snow of death on cheek and forehead. This reminiscence had remained among the things of which the doctor was always conscious, but had never breathed a word, through the whole of his long life, a sprig of sensibility that perhaps helped to keep him tenderer and purer, who entertain no such follies. And the sight of the shrub often brought back the faint golden gleam of her hair, as if her spirit were in the sunlights of the garden, quivering into view and out of it. 
and therefore, when he saw what Pansy had done, he sent forth a strange, inarticulate, hoarse, tremulous exclamation, a sort of aged and decrepit cry of mingled emotion. Naughty Pansy to pull up Grandpapa's flower, said he as soon as he could speak. Poison, Pansy, poison! Fling it away, child! And dropping his spade, the old gentleman scrambled toward the little girl as quickly as his rusty joints would let him, while Pansy, as apprehensive and quick of notion as a fawn, started up with a shriek of mirth and fear to escape him. It so happened that the garden gate was ajar, and a puff of wind blowing it wide open, she escaped through this fortuitous avenue, followed by great-grandpapa and the kitten. "'Stop, naughty Pansy, stop!' shouted our old friend. "'You will tumble into the grave!' The kitten, with the singular sensitiveness that seems to affect it at every kind of excitement, was now on her back. And indeed, this portentous warning was better grounded and had more literal meaning than might be supposed, for the swinging gate communicated with the burial ground, and almost directly in Little Pansy's track there was a newly dug grave ready to receive its tenant that afternoon. Pansy, however, fled onward with outstretched arms, half in fear, half in fun, plying her round little legs with wonderful promptitude, as if to escape time or death in the person of Grand Sir Dolliver, and happily avoiding the ominous pitfall that lies in every person's path till, hearing a groan from her pursuer, she looked over her shoulder and saw that poor Grandpapa had stumbled over one of the many hillocks. She then suddenly wrinkled up her little visage and sent forth a full-breath roar of sympathy and alarm. "'Grandpapa has broken his neck now!' cried little Pansy amid her sobs. "'Kiss Grandpapa and make it well, then,' said the old gentleman, recollecting her remedy, and scrambling up more readily than could be expected. "'Well,' he murmured to himself, "'a hair's breadth more, and I should have been tumbled into yonder grave, poor little Pansy. What wouldst thou have done then?' "'Make the grass grow over, Grandpapa,' answered Pansy, laughing up in his face. Oh, oh, child, that is not a pretty thing to say, said Grandpapa, pettishly and disappointed as people are apt to be when they try to calculate on the fitful sympathies of childhood. Come, you must go in to old Martha now. The poor old gentleman was in the more haste to leave the spot because he found himself standing right in front of his own peculiar row of gravestones, consisting of eight or nine slabs of slate adorned with carved borders rather rudely cut, and the earliest one, that of his Bessie, bending aslant, because the frost of so many winters had slowly undermined it. Over one grave of the row, that of his gifted grandson, there was no memorial. He felt a strange repugnance, stronger than he had ever felt before, to linger by these graves, and had none of the tender sorrow mingled with high and tender hopes that had sometimes made it seem good to him to be there. Such moods perhaps often come to the aged, when the hardened earth crust over their souls shuts them out from spiritual influences. Taking the child by the hand, her little effervescence of infantile fun having passed into a downcast humor, though not well knowing as yet what a dusky cloud of disheartening fancies arose from these green hillocks, he went heavily toward the garden gate, close to its threshold, so that one who was issuing forth or entering must needs step upon it or over it lay a small flat stone, deeply embedded in the ground, and partly covered with grass, inscribed with the name of Dr. John Swinnerton, physician. Aye, said the old man, 
as the well-remembered figure of his ancient instructor seemed to rise before him in his grave apparel, with beard and gold-headed cane, black velvet doublet and cloak. Here lies a man who, as people have thought, had it in his power to avoid the grave. He had no little grandchild to tease him. He had the choice to die, and chose it. So the old gentleman led Pansy over the stone, and carefully closed the gate. And as it happened, he forgot the uprooted shrub which Pansy, as she ran, had flung away, and which had fallen into the open grave. And when the funeral came that afternoon, the coffin was let down upon it, so that its bright, inauspicious flower never bloomed again. End of section 2